People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Paul Conti is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. He did his training at Stanford and at Harvard University, where he served as chief resident. He then worked in a private practice while serving on the medical faculty at Harvard. He was named as one of Oregon's top psychiatrists in 2008, his first full year of practice in Oregon. Dr. Conti serves patients and clients throughout the United States and internationally, including the executive leadership of large corporations. He specializes in complex assessments and problem solving, as well as both health and performance optimization. He is the author of Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, which goes on sale October 5th, 2021. Welcome to Health Gig, Dr. Conti. Tricia and I are thrilled you've joined us today. Thanks so much for having me on. If you could just tell us just a little bit about you and how you found yourself in the field of psychiatry. I had a business career many years ago, and although I enjoyed it in a lot of ways, I was just so curious about what else was making people tick and impacting all of us for better or for worse. And it led me to medical school. And while at medical school, I realized that you could learn so much about not just individual people, but about all of us by studying not just the the brain biology that's behind all of it, but how we interact with one another and how the world around us affects us. And it led me to psychiatry as a way of trying to come at life through the lens of not just science and medical understanding, but combining that with the truth of what it's like to be in the world and how the experiences around us affect us as we move forward. And I just developed a fascination with that, that really answered all the questions that had led me to trying to find my way, you know, by mm. leaving business and going into medicine. That was very unclear when I did it. You know, where's that going to lead me? And yeah. how's that going to end up? And, and it, it turned out psychiatry was this combination, like fascinating medical things and fascinating real life things. So you've written a book that's coming out soon, and it's about trauma. Who is this book for? And how did you settle on trauma as a topic? As I started to really work in the field, you know, after I completed my residency and I started really working, you know, really being in the trenches and I could just see that there was one common issue that was just came up over and over and over again. And the vast majority of conditions or complaints or problems or people trying to improve their lives, including in my own life, was really rooted in trauma, whether it was a very biological illness that had come to the fore and often come to the fore in the context of trauma or someone who wouldn't have identified that there was any trauma or any mental health issues in their life at all, who was still deeply impacted by trauma. And I just saw that this is, in a sense, the soil in which so much of the seeds about all of us are falling. And It was really that realization that grew over time that most of what I do, whether it's treating severe illness or it's consulting to healthier people and everything in between really has to do with trauma, which then changes our view of of not just of the world around us, but it changes our view of ourselves. Trauma can be different for everybody. I mean, you shared some examples of trauma really in your own life. 
yes. that I think you can obviously pad and you share. And I think a lot of us can connect with that. Can you talk about your trauma? The first part of my life was relatively smooth in the sense that I didn't identify major traumas. I was very, actually quite fortunate. And around sort of the middle, at least at this point, I'm in my early 50s, around the middle of my life, that there started to be some very, very traumatic events. And I think because I hadn't had formative life trauma that way, I could start to see the depth of the impact of, of thinking differently about myself and thinking differently about the world. And in a sense, changing my views into views that were views coming from fear, you know, sort of feeling beleaguered that the world is a dangerous place and like, I'm not going to be okay in it. Right. And no matter what I do, like things are going to happen that are just going to make everything harder. And I could see that there was a shift in me from, in a sense of more of a little level playing field towards one that even in my own head was becoming very slanted against me. Seeing that play out to some significant degree in myself, I think was helpful for me in, in seeing it play out in other people of thinking, well, how does that person who's been through trauma think about themselves now? And how did they think about themselves before? And that is really what fueled my fascination with trauma because people's truths changed. What was true about someone in a very deep way, you know, the, the sort of deep truth that you have the castle walls around, right? That like inside of that are truths about a person that things that were that precious were, were changed by trauma often without the person knowing that, they, that mm. they'd felt any differently. And then their mood has changed. Their level of anxiety has changed. Their choices about the world has changed. And without a person really knowing and someone saying, well, I'll just stay in this job that I can't stand, or I'll stay in this abusive relationship mm. in ways that sound quite, in a sense, obvious and logical that that's what one would do, but completely at odds with what that person would have chosen for themselves before trauma. And I think that's in many ways very frightening, but it's also very approachable. If there's this common problem, then yeah. we can approach and understand that problem and it doesn't have to be as intimidating as saying, well, now you've forgotten what you know about yourself mm -hmm. and you're just supposed to go on. I mean, that part is very frightening, but it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes people say, oh, you have to let it go. Just let it go. But in what you're saying is, well, wait, there was something there that happened. And how right. can you shift seeing that right. instead of letting go? It's almost changing the way you're looking at it. Is that sort of what you're saying? Right. Because the idea of, of just letting it go might sound good in theory, but like that's not how we work. Our brains are driven primarily by our limbic systems, the parts of our brains that generate emotion. And if something traumatic has happened and that part of the brain is now seeing that as very significant and very impactful, it's not going to just let it go. Right. right. And that's what creates those voices, our own voices in our minds that tell us that we're not safe and things aren't okay. And right, it, it's because we can't just let those things go. We have to look at what stories have they told us, right? If a person is assaulted and then the lesson they get from that is, well, people will always hurt me. But you can't just let that go or you accept the new truths that are not true. But by looking at that, by understanding it, by processing it, one can change that and say, yes, like something bad has happened to me, but it doesn't say that I can't navigate the world or people will always hurt me. That's not what that means. And if we just sort of let it go, we don't actually let it go. We lock in the wrong lesson. Yes, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in your Thank book, you. you describe the kinds of trauma there are, which I thought was really interesting because 
Trisha experienced something that you experienced. Her husband died of pancreatic cancer, and I know your mother died. Of- so sorry. And so um, when I was looking through the different traumas, you talked about a kind of trauma that is vicarious through someone else. Yes. You can experience that. So I think all of Trisha's close friends and families went through it with her. We all did. Yeah. Yes. So I'm wondering if you can describe the different types of trauma and how they manifest. My goal is always to try and parse things out to a level of just simplicity and kind of common sense. Mm -hmm. A lot of things in life can work that way if we want to look at them that way. This idea that there is acute trauma, chronic trauma, and vicarious Mm -hmm. trauma, I believe really captures the spectrum. You know, acute trauma would be a single event that happens to someone. So a car accident in which the person is injured and is sold. A chronic trauma are things that unfold over time. So illness in someone else, and then the loss of that person would be a chronic trauma. A person in, a, in an abusive setting or in a setting that treats them as less than, right? So a setting over time that perhaps from racial or socioeconomic perspectives just indicates to that person that they're less than. They don't have the same rights as other people. They don't have the same abilities. That's a form of chronic trauma. And the vicarious trauma is really trauma in someone else that we then experience through the ability to be empathically attuned with other people. So the loss of someone else through illness could cover all three spectrums, right? It could be acute trauma when a person finds out and apprehends, oh my goodness, what what is this this diagnosis and what's going to happen? And then the chronic trauma of the fear of loss playing out and how the conception of self and others and world sort of plays out as the person is becoming more ill. And the vicarious part is is the part about really experiencing someone else's pain and suffering. When we lose someone close to us to illness, it's more often in the acute and chronic trauma categories because it's happening to someone else, but it's happening to us too. The vicarious trauma might be, for example, a friend who knew what you were going through and communicated with you and cared about you and cried with you, that person is then affected because they're separated from the sort of inner circle of the trauma, but they can be deeply affected by it nonetheless. One of the things that you really focus on in the book is shame. Yes. Can you talk about that and how that factors into trauma? The limbic system in our brains, the part that deals with what we call emotion. It does several different things. And one of the things that comes from the limbic system is called affect. And affect gets just created in us without our choice. So if someone moves in front of you and shoves you, you can feel angry or afraid. You feel that without choosing it. The idea is that it's aroused in us, meaning it's just created in us without choice. And trauma arouses shame. It's a reflexive response in us. And affects are designed to be very, very powerful. So fear, joy, love, they're very, very powerful and they impact us in deep ways. When trauma arouses shame, that's so powerful Mm. that if we don't know what to do with it, and remember, we haven't chosen it, right? Mm -hmm. It's aroused or created Mm -hmm. in us. Then the vast majority of times becomes very toxic. It's designed as a behavioral deterrent. Imagine when we lived in small groups, if someone gets up in the middle of the night in the cave and eats all the food, that person should feel ashamed because they're they're putting everyone's survival at risk. So there are cases of well-placed shame because it's about survival. But most of the time, shame comes in a form like this. So someone is assaulted by someone and then what's aroused 
is the shame of the trauma. And then the shame comes to them. That's what leads a person to say, oh, that's my fault. I should have done something differently. What did I do to cause it? Because the shame is so toxic that if we don't look at it and say, what is this? How was this created in me? What do I choose to make of it? Maybe there is someone who should feel ashamed, but it's the person who hurt me. But if we don't go through that process, the shame is so powerful that it attaches to the person. It makes that person feel anxious and afraid and inadequate. So shame is so toxic because trauma creates it in us. And then it just starts a cascade or a domino effect of Mm -hmm. negative things that come after it. It's how a person decides, well, I'm not worth very much or no one will ever be good to me or I'll never have a good relationship. It may be trauma that does the damage, but the henchmen and the evildoers that come after the trauma are really driven by shame. How do you deal with trauma that you can't identify or that stays buried? Often by talking about things, because it's remarkable how infrequently people talk about their trauma. Many, many, many times I've seen people who have had hundreds of hours of mental health care or they've been in residential facilities. No one ever talked about trauma. So once a person starts talking, then very often they can put words to what's actually going on in them. And I don't mean in the form of recovered memories. I think that's something very different about which we, I think, are well served to have sort of healthy skepticism. People often will understand and know things from their past, but they were just under the surface, right? They knew them, but had admitted them. So I'm not saying a new, entirely new memory. What I'm saying is people often know why they feel the way they do, but we push it underneath the surface. And when a person starts talking, they can identify that even if it's not one circumstance. It's, you know, I was bullied as a kid, right? Like that's enough. When a person starts talking and then they can see that's when my conception of myself changed. That's when I started really avoiding the world. I stopped taking chances, you know, including taking good chances. Like maybe I want to go for that job or ask that person out. When that shifted in a person, Mm -hmm. they can often identify. So when people start talking, you can often get to where their trauma is coming from, even if it's not something clearly identifiable, like a very sensitive person who even witnessed a lot of people being bullied day in, day out and was afraid it was them next. And there are so many ways that the trauma can come into us. And I say that because if we understand it, if we're putting words to it, then we can look at what it's done to us and we can change that. Because you say, imagine it as a disease, like imagine it as it's invisible, right? And it just sort of works its way in and does what it does. Right. Right. Hence the title of the book is like, it's trauma, the invisible epidemic, right? Because Mm -hmm. we're not identifying it, you know, at, at least as bad as, for example, a viral epidemic is, which we see playing out in the pandemic, we're still in the midst of. There is at least a way of testing and saying, hey, do do you have that or not? Mm -hmm. If you have that, what symptoms do you have? Do you need care? I mean, that doesn't always lead us to healing from it, but at least it can point us in the right direction as opposed to trauma going on all around us and, and in ourselves and being contagious from one person to another. You know, someone who feels very badly about themselves and maybe that comes from someone else's aggression towards Mm -hmm. them. And then that person often to become aggressive themselves. And then, you know, that, that passes the trauma down to the next person. So unless we start thinking about like, how is this going on in society around us? And 
how has this been furthered in the last year and a half, right? Yeah. Or even in the last several years of trauma on the level of loss of death and illness in how many people from the pandemic and in the wanton way that we handle conflict in society. There's so much animosity and so much anger that at anyone who doesn't agree with someone else, we're hurling the worst <laughs> words and, and, mm -hmm. and thoughts at it. And that doesn't let us take care of ourselves, right? It doesn't let us as a society say, hey, if we have a lot of political disagreements, okay, let's talk about that. But let's also try and make sure we don't all die in the midst. We can't even do that. So the impact of trauma, this is not some esoteric topic where there's something invisible going on and nobody knows. And like, no, it's not esoteric at all. It's being transmitted from person to person and it is damaging and harming us. And we're seeing that in the impact it has upon physical death in the pandemic, physical death from racially or politically charged violence. So it's real and it's in front of us moment in, moment out. So I guess there's trauma in all of us. I mean, if we're living, there's trauma. But there's trauma to some extent in all of us. I mean, when we say, look, life brings wonderful things, but life is traumatic. As we move through life, we accumulate losses. And we know that people can get through that and be happier mm -hmm. because, you know, there are studies that show us that when people sort of age in a healthy way and they handle themselves and their health in healthy ways, I don't mean just their physical health, their physical health and mental health, that we can absorb those losses and we can actually be happier and healthier as time goes on. So it shows it's not just that, oh, we all accumulate trauma and it grinds us down to nothing. It's mm -hmm. no, we accumulate trauma and that trauma can lead us to have wisdom and compassion and, mm. and a sense of self that's positive because of the things that we know we've persevered through and the ways in which we've shown ourselves to be the people we want to be in the world, that it can go that way. But if we're not handling our health in a way that really looks at this and understands this, it accumulates in us. And people mm -hmm. feel worse and worse over time and more fearful of the world over time. Yeah. And ultimately, then it does get worse over time. And mm -hmm. that's part of where the idea that the multiple hit theory of, of then having a trauma syndrome says that if trauma is unrecognized and unprocessed, well, it can have a cumulative impact. And you can have a person who now has a very significant post-trauma syndrome after what seemed like a relatively mild trauma, right? Because mm. that hit, so to speak, came on top of two, three, four, five, six other hits mm -hmm. that is taxing their brain biology, how genes are transcribing and how the chemicals and proteins made by those yeah. genes are impacting the brain. Then the person is primed and ready to have a trauma problem with a, maybe a smaller hit because we haven't looked at the problem as it's evolved over time. So yes, it's in all of us to varying degrees, although it doesn't have to run our happiness or our lives mm -hmm. into the ground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the brain. Um, so how does specifically trauma work in the brain? Trauma shifts the whole functioning of the brain, which is, of course, extremely complicated. But we can get an idea of like what's going on. What's the big picture of how the brain looks? And trauma really shifts that. These processes in the limbic system, which is the most important part of our brain, when logic and emotion run head to head, emotion wins. We're mm -hmm. emotional creatures because that's how we keep ourselves alive. Mm -hmm. Our brain saying, be afraid of that. 
Don't eat that berry. Don't go into those woods alone. It's designed to keep us alive. So when we start changing the brain, so that part of it is now very, very amped up, then that starts changing everything. It changes the patterns of transmission in the brain where our consciousness and our awareness is residing, how we think about things, what thoughts we kind of decide are true and what thoughts we think aren't. So you start to really change. When I was growing up, people would say that the soup that we're swimming in, as if, you know, we're, we're swimming around in this, this soup of life, right? And it's the soup, say, inside of our brain. And it changes dramatically as a result of trauma. And there are studies that show that that's not just a conjecture. And you see in the book where I interview Darren Richarder, right? He's a psychiatrist at Stanford. And, and, you know, Darren, who's an expert in the research and who has done research on this level in individuals and across societies, shows absolutely this is the case, that trauma changes everything, not just in a person, but it changes things across generations, Yeah. right? So, so a person who has trauma, trauma in any setting, but say there's an acute trauma, there's an assault, whether it's wartime assault or not, that person then is changed such that if they have a child five years later, the child is impacted by the trauma that the mother experienced years before the person was conceived. That's, I mean, Incredible. to me, there's no stronger, no more compelling information than that. And just to repeat that, it's in the genes? It changes how then the genes, the genes. transcribed, right? Okay. right? Because the genes are like the code that we all right. have. But right. how that code gets used, right? What aspects of the code are active and what aspects are not active? And what are the proportions of different parts of that code gets changed? There's a field of endeavor called epigenetics. And, and yeah. it's, it's one of the fields that, that very powerfully speaks to this. So yes, you, you, you become different after trauma. Mm-hmm. It's in ways we can do something about. But if we don't do something, then we are different. In mm. fact, we're so different that we can pass that difference on. We can pass the changes on to children who aren't even imagined yet, let alone conceived, then they have risks they wouldn't have had without the trauma right. that happened to the parent years before. You did another interview in your book with a childhood trauma expert. Yeah, Stephanie von Gutenberg. Can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of childhood trauma? Stephanie von Gutenberg is an expert on child trauma from the perspective of understanding and prevention. So understanding of how do you recognize childhood trauma? How do you understand the social circumstances that predispose to it? And then how do you engage in prevention? And also how do you identify people who've been harmed so that they can be helped? So her work has been about understanding and prevention in a way that allows her to understand in children things that Darren Richarder sees across populations of people. Because that's my area of expertise is not in the sociology of trauma, let's say, across generations, nor is it in children. So their expertise is at different ends of the spectrum. And her expertise really points out and and speaks to the incredible, and I don't use that word lightly, the incredible damage to children of trauma. And if you think of how formative childhood is, and the earlier in childhood, the more formative, you see that these changes in the brain, in the conception of self, that they are so strong and so powerful when they play out in childhood. You talk about changing absolutely everything, like the whole lay of the land inside 
of someone. And I see that in a way. It's what makes her so passionate about children. And I think part of what makes Darren so passionate about transcultural trauma is also what you pass on to the next generation ultimately gets passed on to children. And if, you know, if we're not worried about children, what are we good for as a society? Like, right. what, what are we worried about if not the health of children? Right. How do we identify trauma in ourselves? Is there a feeling? How do we identify it? One way can be to reflect on things that we may know about ourselves or about others that we continually push under the surface. And we know that we do this as human beings. We push things unconscious many, many, many times. We do this throughout the day. We do it, let alone about really important things that scare us or make us feel badly about ourselves. And sometimes when a person sits down to talk about trauma, they'll just say, oh, I've never said this before. Or they'll say something so clear and obvious, right? Right. It was the, the sexual abuse when I was a kid. They'll say that. And in a way, it's like, whoa, like I've, I've known that like every day of my life since then, but I've never allowed myself to say it, to think it. So reflection without, while trying to take down our, our fear levels of what's inside of us, that I don't have to be afraid of what's going on inside of me. I can look at it. I can put words to it. I can get help with it. Another way, because sometimes you know, looking for what we're not telling ourselves can kind of be a, you know, a catch-22, right? right? Because sometimes we won't see it. We're not telling it to ourselves. Looking for changes in ourselves or changes in others. When did I stop thinking, hey, I want to do more interesting things in the world and think, you know what? I'm better off staying at home. When did that change? When, when did I stop thinking, I want, I want a good job. I want a good relationship, right? I want my kids to be happier. Mm. When did we stop thinking that and just hunker down and say, it's never going to get any better? When did a person stop going to the gym? When did the person stop dating? These are questions that can point us towards when things shifted in us, right? When did levels of anxiety change? When did panic attacks start? When did a person start feeling Mm. depressed? When did sleep start being disrupted? Oftentimes, it's not that hard to determine if we're not hiding it from ourselves. But again, we hide it from ourselves because that's a defense. We're trying to protect ourselves. Our brains are trying to protect us. And we don't realize that that's not the way to protect ourselves. But society kind of tells us that. Mm -hmm. Society kind of tells us that. It doesn't often want to look at people's trauma or it wants to put a label on it. It says, oh, now you're sick. There are a lot of deterrents to really looking at what's going on in us and saying, look, can I get help for this? And our health system certainly doesn't help us along then. It's very difficult to get help. Help wants to put somebody in a box. Okay, check the six symptoms box. Now you got this and I'll give you this medicine in the 15 minutes I've got to see you, right? And and I'm not criticizing the practitioners there because many are just trying to do the best they can, but our health system has really devolved to just absurd levels of waste and absurd levels of non-provision of help. So again, those are the clues and knowing that When that happens to you, you recognize it probably is a trauma of some sort. And then you ask yourself the questions. And as you said, you could reach out for help then. Then you've got words and you can do it. And by speaking those words, I think what you're saying is that you're telling the shame to go away, go away, right? Like I'm I'm allowed to be this way. This happened to me. And I speak those words. And I think what you're saying is the words are pretty powerful, not to others, but also to yourself. Yes. And that's why you had asked me before, I think about like, who's the book for? I mean, look, the Mm -hmm. book is for everyone. There's trauma in 
all of us to some degree. And if we're not seeing it in ourselves, it may be that, okay, the person's been fortunate enough to not be so deeply affected, but, but then it's in other people around us. So the trauma is everywhere. And if there's anything I stand for, it's anti-shame. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many things in 20 years of doing this do I see that people are ashamed of? Yeah. People are ashamed. Why? Because they've been told to be ashamed of it told mm-hmm. to be ashamed of what they look like, told to be ashamed of their sexuality, told That's to be true. ashamed of their gender identity, told right. to be ashamed of their socioeconomic status, told to be ashamed of their ethnicity. I mean, how many things does society tell us to be ashamed of? And if anything, I am anti-shame. Mm-hmm. Because, because if we take the level of shame down, then it's like, oh, I can see what's going on. Yeah. Right. It's yes. like trying to think clearly or see a road sign, you know, in a storm. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. it's very, very hard. There's high levels of tension and it's hard to see what's around us. But if we bring all of that energy down, then it, then a person can see, hey, here's what's going on in me and I don't need to be ashamed of it. And it's, it's a reason mm-hmm. I write about things in my own life. And I talk about things yeah. in my own life in my work because, again, we're all in the same right? Suit, right? And when one can see that, then shame can go away. It, it's that trauma leads a person to think, I got to hide this. It's only me. This never happens to anybody else. Or if it does, we all need to hide. And and like, that's the worst thing for trauma. The the best thing to fight trauma is is for us to say, hey, this happens to all of us and there's no shame in it. So can I get it out there? Whether it's with someone I love and trust, or it's a religious person I trust, or it's a professional. Can can I just Mm -hmm. get it out there? Because once we can do that, we're off to the races in making things better. That's what's so great about your book is all the true life examples and stories that are relatable to people. Thank you. And so you do focus on healing from trauma and the positive life that you can lead after. So could you talk a little bit about how we can heal from trauma that you talk about five critical links? So I write about five foundations and five critical links. And I think the foundations tell us that there's so much for us to learn. One, just from history. I mean, history tells us the same lessons over and over and over again. It tells us lessons that when we're coming from a point of selfishness and and division, and it's us against them, Mm -hmm. it never goes well for anybody. So it doesn't go well for individuals. It doesn't go well for nations. So history has lessons to teach us. Our religious principles, often not how organized religions enact those principles, but the principles in the religion. Science and medicine has so much to teach us. Our own life experience has so much to teach us. And early education, which is the same the world over. What do we teach kids when they're five, six, seven years old? So there's so much to learn from these foundations. And if we can just come back to like, what are the basic principles that they teach us? then what comes of that is a great deal of knowledge. And that leads to the five critical links. So there's so much knowledge around us that we don't pay any, well, sometimes any, right? And often enough attention to as individuals, as a society. There's so much knowledge to be had from those five foundations. And knowledge is power. So the first part is knowledge. The second of the five critical links is power. When you have knowledge, Now you understand things, right? And you have Mm -hmm. power to think about them differently, to use different words, to make different choices, to choose different behaviors. Instead of drinking again tonight about that misery, (laughs) get some help. Get some help because because you know that's not the right way to treat that trauma. And you know it's making your life worse and worse. And you know that your liver is getting sicker and sicker. You know people are getting more worried. How about a different choice? Because you feel empowered to make a different choice and to get help. 
So knowledge brings power. And with power, we can do good. And doing good leads to healing. This isn't some trite pie in the sky thing to say, right? I mean, I think that this is as practical as we're going to get. Knowledge brings power. If we do good with power, then it brings healing. And healing brings us hope. If you start to heal, you start to feel even a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And this happens. How many times has someone come into my office and said, oh, God, you can't help me. Or it's so awful. Why am I either hanging their head? And, and you know, an hour later, they can leave feeling very hopeful mm-hmm. because they feel a little bit better than when they came in or they feel like, oh, I said that. And I don't feel ashamed that I said it. Like somebody looked me in the eyes back and said, look, we can do something about this. Right. We can make things better. This is not your fault. And you can make it better and I can help you. Then people feel hopeful and hopefulness is its own kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And they feel like, oh, it clicks. Like I can be healthier. Now I feel hopeful. That's a kind of knowledge that pushes to urgency. Knowledge, power, healing, hope, and urgency. Because mm-hmm. then you think, well, what's, what's more important than that, right? What do I want to be doing more than like, let me work on being healthy. And this is true as individuals and as a society, the urgency of moving in a healing direction. Think about it, in our own nation. I mean, what is of greater urgency when we risk being spun apart? And I think being spun apart through trauma. So true. God, so true. When Dora and I were talking, talking, and again, so moved by your work, she said, oh my gosh, the part about finding support in our communities. And But you say you also oh, have yeah. to be better ally, allies for yourself. So Dora, tell them what you told me. What really resonated with me was the exercise about the angel and the devil on the shoulders. Can you talk about that? I think that imagery is in my mind from like when I was a kid. When we were, yeah, yeah. 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 Cartoons, right? You'd have the angel would pop up yeah. and the devil, your devil would pop and up. Right. And yeah. And so the imagery is in my head. And then I came to realize this was a whole number of years ago that this is going on all the time in us. Like it was, it's going on in me, except the voice is the devil. Right. It's the part of me that can manifest in that devilish way. That then says, okay, you're not good enough. Yeah. And what you've done isn't good enough. So I could go through a day and, you know, by and large, have a good day and work hard over uh, 12 hours or 14 hours and help people and feel like, okay, if I really looked at that, like, I think I've worked hard, tried my best and done some good today. But one negative thing will happen. Something I'll do that, like, I know I could have done better. And then what's the voice telling me that, you know, you're not very good at this. What do you, what do you think you're doing? You know, it, it says negative things. And I think they're traumatic places in our brain that like just give the devil on the shoulder free passage to like make the story. Mm-hmm. And the idea is like, if there's like the angel on the other side, that there's something to counter that with. And again, I'm not, these aren't things I've made up. I mean, psychiatry and psychology have used tactics like this forever of trying to get people to engage in dialogue. Because If you actually say, okay, there's the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, and it's me, the whole me, that's going to decide what's right. So sometimes we'll ask people to say, what is that devil on the shoulder telling you? And if it says, well, no one will ever love me. I'm not lovable. I'm never going to have a good relationship. Like what what, what I think I'm going to get something good. So let's actually put words to that, right? And often persons never actually put words to that. So let's put words to that. Like there is a part of you that, that thinks that and that says that. Okay, is there a part to counter that? And often where we go is to a part that was there before trauma. No, I'm a good person. I work hard. I do my best. I'm loving to other people. Why wouldn't someone be loving to me? 
mm-hmm. you start a dialogue going within mm-hmm. the person because this is going on in us all the time. And if we don't look at it that way, it's as if the devil's on the shoulder with a microphone in our ear, right? And the angel is a mile away from the other shoulder whispering. We have to bring a sense of fairness by putting words to like, what is it that we've learned about ourselves through trauma? And, and are those lessons really true? Do we embrace them and accept them? Yeah. That's how we end up rejecting them. Yeah, yeah right. I also like the analogy you used when you talked about rewriting our own true life narrative. And you said it's creating a true life narrative is like waking up in the backseat of a car being driven by a reckless phantom. We climb over the seat, shove the phantom aside and take the wheel. The phantom is trauma. It's what trauma does to us. And and then things change in us and we don't know. And we can wake up and realize it's, it's not me driving anymore. So in my own life, I did not have these big developmental traumas, but then had several very bad ones, you know, coming in a short span of years and then realizing, oh, my brain had shifted to thinking like, Oh, I'm, I'm cursed, right? Things are never going to go well. When's the next horrible thing going to happen? And then what's wrong with me if these things are happening? You know, I'm not seeing what I should see. I'm not being a, a good person to other people, or maybe someone else wouldn't have gotten sick, or my brother wouldn't have committed suicide. So then the, the story changed. So now I've written a different story in my head that says, actually, there's something wrong with me. That's why all of this has happened. And, and again, I mean, this isn't meant to like not take responsibility for things in our lives, right? Saying like, did I contribute if I, maybe I contributed to things that were negative. The idea is, you know, let us all off the hook. The idea is to fight against, hey, I'm cursed and I'm bad because what? Because bad things have happened around me. That's a narrative. That's a narrative I had in my own head. I never had before trauma. And I need yeah. to look at that and say, whoa, like th- that's not, that wasn't my story before. That's not what I thought about myself before, what I thought about the world. So like, what do I actually think? And that's how we we write narratives that are true and that thereby are helpful to us. Well, your work helping people through trauma is so important. And I would just encourage when your book comes out in October, that everyone read this book by Dr. Paul Conti, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. I'm just excited about it. And Trisha and I are so grateful to you for Mm -hmm. your work and coming on our show. Thank you. I'm grateful for the two of you for the the time and effort you put into reading the book, to thinking about it, and to, and to, to talking with me today. I so appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.